everyone. Welcome back to Collaborative Edges, conversations to inspire initiatives across languages and cultures. I'm Rocio Quispeñoli, the host of this podcast series. Uh, for this edition, we have in the studio uh, two scholars who work in the intersections of indigenous studies and photography by and about others. Mary Vogel, Colorado State University, and Candice Keller, Michigan State University, and myself, by the way, this time. Okay, hello and, and welcome, Mary and Candice. Hello, thank you. Thank you, Rocio. Nice to be here. Oh, thank you for being here <coughs> as well. And um, Mary, Candice, and I, uh, along with other uh, colleagues, are sharing our work on indigenous photographer, photographers of Mali, Morocco, and Peru as part of um, as part of our collaborative initiative, picturing others from both sides of the lens, an interdisciplinary seminar on indigenous photography, self-portraits, preservation, and epistemic disobedience that is being held at Michigan State University in April 2018. So let's start with a general question to the two of you. Uh, why studying photography and why indigenous why is studying indigenous or native photographers of um, Africa and South America? Uh, Mary. I'm working on a, a larger project about art criticism in North Africa. So I'm looking at it kind of from a literary and cultural perspective. But I want to say that uh, Moroccan art, I find it so special and unique, um, amazing aesthetically and visually. And not everyone is exposed to that. And mm -hmm. so part of what makes me excited about this is to be able to um, connect the cultural studies and literary studies with this um, just fabulous production. Okay. Candice? I, too, came at this research from African studies, not from photography. So though I'm an art historian, a lot of people who study the subject come from the side of photography, but I came from studying Malian culture and language and, and art. And so I'm really interested in the connections between the rural and the urban, the contemporary and the traditional and the local and the global through photography and the ways in which... Um, local ideas, uh, social theories, related aesthetic concepts can help us read the images, understand what was going on with these particular photographic practices, um, and the relationships between the photographers and their, their subjects and the role of photography in society and learn more about the local historical significance of the images so that when it's in, interjected into the larger canon, um, we have a lot to learn from an African context, and that way can speak to other images that we're used to seeing, like in National Geographic or on the news, which is mm. not the same kind of imagery, and so it can speak to those kinds of stereotypes. Yes, and I, I agree. I'm starting to work um, Andean photography and uh, photography by indigenous um, photo pho photographers of Peru and Bolivia and to a certain extension, Ecuador. And I, I agree with both of you. First, as Mary says, it's, it's quite unknown. You know, with, uh, there are many photographs about the Indian peoples of Peru, but what is unknown is when the photographer behind the lens is 
of in indigenous descent or descent or mestizo, mm -hmm. and uh, so it's it's unknown. And I was um, talking um, um, earlier with Jorge Coronado, who's also working on this in this area, and we're both literary scholars. That's where that's our background, and we were saying how unknown it is, and we have uh, to make it to, to to call attention to put the focus on that kind of, of work that is very unknown. And the other um, issue is, as Candice um, says, is uh, it's local, it's, it's local, but it also has an impact on, on uh, uh, at, the, at the national level and especially also at, at the global level because our, uh, uh, people working on the Andes were constantly confronted with very stereotypical views of what constitutes an Indian of that region, yeah. you know, and that is uh, what um, we are trying to um, uh, to deconstruct and understand and see what is going on. So it's it's it, what is interesting for me is that um, a photographer from um, Morocco and uh, from Mali and from Peru uh, they they, they um, confront similar dilemmas mm -hmm. and similar issues and and um, problems and how they face them or how they try to solve them or address them. So going now into uh, this more, a little bit more specific, is there anything different or unique about the photographers you study and how they uh, depict others, you know, others or the, the, the ones they are, they are photographing, the subjects or the objects of, of uh, their activities. Is there anything specific you have noticed so far, uh, Candice? Are you asking what is the difference between in the indigenous photographers that I work with or Malian photographers versus how Westerners yes. might picture? Okay. Yes, that's that's uh, so point. Yeah. a primary difference would be um, showing these individuals as cosmopolitan and global and engaged with the wider context, which is an interest particularly in portraiture for the subjects that are depicted, but also the photographers who depict them. And so um, instead of using landscape backdrop paintings, which that did happen sometimes, but for the most part, a lot of them used um, pattern, highly ornate or graphic pattern textiles for the backdrop, which tends to flatten the picture plane, put mm -hmm. more focus on the the face, the eyes of the individual empower them in a way. They, they're much more, um, it's not a passive view. They're, they're sort of active, uh, uh, chic even. And oftentimes they'll take a low vantage point in the studio, so you're actually looking up at them um, in the way that Hollywood would do. So, mm. so I think highlighting their... Uh, their um, desirability that that they are you want to be like their enviable status if you will whether it was lived or whether it was um, aspired to so through props or through um, you know their own attire or whatever they brought into the studio you know the 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 camp the the photographers would use tricks to aggrandize them so that the, to to the viewing public, which is mostly their family and their friends, they have kind of an enviable, chic, uh, fashionable um, 
status. And that has resonated, I think, in Western and global audiences as like fashion style mm. photography. And it's been influential for uh, fashion designers and it's been influential for musicians and videographers. And so I think that kind of the high, the, the pattern on pattern on pattern, the, the polka dotted flooring and the checkered backdrop. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. the, I think that style has been unique, but, but then also the sense of trying to aggrandize these cosmopolitan, primarily youths has, has resonated, I think with uh, global publics, which is very different than the way that Westerners picture Malians or Africans. Yes. And Mary, have you, um, or can you share something distinctive or unique that you have observed in um, photographers of Morocco? Sure, yeah. In fact, um, one of the, f I cast my net kind of wide. I'm looking at five photographers, and that's probably too much for my project. But one um, is kind of speaking back to some of the stereotypes about veiled women and mm -hmm. um, and that they are don't have agency and they're just victims. And part of what he does is appropriate um, the this West African photo studio photography aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And so with the crazy patterns and the um, bright colors, and so he will go to Marrakesh um, uh, meet up with his friends there. He's he's based in London, but he goes to Marrakesh, um, gets people, his friends, to pose. Um, they'll put on some veils, and maybe the veil will have a Louis Vuitton mm. symbols on it, or a Coca Cola, or you know, pop kind of uh, iconography, um, just to have a playful kind of spin on that. And I think it really. Um, kind of makes people think twice. A lot of his audience might be Europeans and their idea about what the veil is and symbolizes and all that is a way to kind of turn that on its head. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, um, it's... it's uh, what, I, what I notice in the photographers that I am starting to work with is uh, how they... Uh, from one end... Well, let's, let's um, uh, rephrase this. The photographers... I'm looking into, they are from the um, uh, first or the early decades of the 20th century. So the, the social and historical context, of course, uh, sets up certain conditions, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, from one end, they are um, uh, responding to the market no, and to the consumer. So they want to give to the, uh, the, the consumer what they want. And this is where the exotism uh, comes mm -hmm. and the marketing and the postal cards, etc. No? But from the other end, this is the, the interesting part, and it's very, very subtle, as we were discussing today also with the work of, of Jorge Coronado, is that, it's that there is a critique there that is very subtle. You just have to be uh, careful how you look at it, no. And earlier we were discussing uh, the negotiation. I'm fascinated by the by the fact that uh, those who were photographed, uh, and I'm talking about indigenous people or mestizo people. Others talk about those who are subaltern. You know, uh, uh, if they were paying for it, they were they had the power to negotiate. This is the why I. This is the the way I want to be photographed. And this is the way I want to be represented. Whether they, whether they were responding to models of, you know, uh, Western models mm -hmm. of presenting themselves is something else. Mm -hmm. But what I'm interested in is that they were negotiating. And we tend to assume, as I mentioned before, or I tend to assume, perhaps it's my, my 
assumption only that uh, the photograph has almost no saying. You know that the photograph that, that the person who's being photographed has almost no saying, and it's the photographer who is in control of the the situation. And I'm learning with with you and with our other colleagues that there is more there to to look at and to explore. And this brings me to the topic of representation and self-representation and identification, how I want to be identified and presented in a photograph, either if I'm the photographer or, or someone else. And uh, could you share with us any findings you uh, may have so far about um, the indigenous behind the lens who is photographing him or herself or his or others and um, how uh, does this impact the field, the field of photography that you are working with? Candice. Uh, well, I think I just sort of spoke mm -hmm. to that in terms of how the serving the local needs uh, by using the highly ornate patterned backdrops that put the emphasis on the face, which is what people mm -hmm. wanted in their in their portraits, by showing them as cosmopolitan, by showing them as connected with the globe, as chic, all of those things allowed, or you know, these were negotiations, and people would, you know, let the photographer know what they wanted, or else they didn't even need to tell the photographer. There are some things that are just understood. Mm -hmm. The photographer had visual means to underscore or highlight whatever values it was they were representing, whether they wanted to commemorate a friendship, a particular relationship, a holiday, you know, their firstborn child. There were ways that that could be visually reinforced as well as other concepts. But those practices in a global context, as I said, I think change the way people in the West are able to understand Africa and Africans in, in my case, because it's not National Geographic. It's not mm -hmm. the, the disaster photos they see in the news. My students who see these photos from the 1960s, which seem very contemporary to them, and you know, there's photographs of, um, depending on the, the clothing, tied to Michael Jackson right at the same time as Michael Jackson was popular here, and they're like, why don't we see this kind of imagery? Why aren't we looking at all of the similarities, all of the connections, all of the innovations and, and cultural ideas, aesthetics from African um, contexts? Why isn't that popularized? Why isn't that what we see? And so I think when, when these images are more popularized, then it does help to change the conversation, and it has been inspirational to many designers, clothing designers, uh, videographers. Mm -hmm. Janet Jackson has referenced, mm -hmm. you know, it's been in uh, fashion magazines. Malik Sidibey was commissioned by the New York Times Fashion Magazine to do a shoot with Andreas Kokino. So it's part of a larger global, local conversation. Okay. And Mary, could you um, uh, share something with us about that? In the case of uh, the photographers you're working with? Sure. Yeah, the photographers I'm studying, I mean, they are also all very cosmopolitan and participate in this global art market. One of the challenges for them is if they are, their project is to deconstruct these stereotypes of mm -hmm. the Orient and Muslims and Muslim women and the veil and harems and all these things. Um, Part of their project is 
reconstructing those images with some kind of spin, with their own mm. take that somehow tries to reinforce that sense of the agency of the people who are being depicted or some kind of an ironic twist to it. Um, sometimes the challenge, and when they speak about it, they can be articulate and people who are <clears throat> sort of in the running in the world of the contemporary, you know, cosmopolitan art market may understand what they're trying to do. Other people seeing their exhibits, maybe they don't read the program notes. Um, it, it, it runs that risk, I think, at times of reinforcing some of those stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's unavoidable. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah. As much as um, we would like that not to happen, but yeah, yeah. and that challenge of that postmodern critique, you know, is it, it, it to what extent is it always successful? Mm -hmm. And if it's not, you know, is that the fault of the artist? Is that the, you know, the spectators who aren't taking the time to really um, understand that or their level of sophistication? There's a lot of questions. Yes, I remember today we were discussing, and, and you posed this question to, to Jorge about that photograph by Martin Chambi called uh, Tristeza Andina, Andean Sadness, mm -hmm. and you said, mm -hmm. you asked, why is that Indianismo, why is not Indigenismo? You know, and then I was looking at that photograph because being a Peruvian, I, I, I see it and I said right away, oh, that is Indianismo because that is our idea, my idea of the ideal, frozen in time, ahistorical, Indian, that it's, we have this, this stereotype of the Andean Indian as a very sad person, you know, mm -hmm. and that is probably reinforced by the uh, uh, music, the, the pamphlet music, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, then a, a, all these associations come together when I look at that photograph, mm. I, I, me as a Peruvian, you know, mm -hmm. this is, mm -hmm. so, and Jorge was having the same, uh, the same or a similar reading. And, uh, but then I started looking at, at it while we were discussing today and following up or, or thinking in your question. And I said, yeah, I see certain uh, things that the indigenista scholars who uh, would, would have liked very much, which is the dark, the very dark skin, for instance, of, of the Indian and the phenotype. And that would be, um, for them, I am physically speaking to the uh, close to what is obsessive search for the authentic Indian. That That's like a valorization yes, of that. Yes, uh -huh. but it's still the whole setting, it's so like romantic, idealized, frozen in time, like floating, you know, that is what makes it um, uh, prone to be um, praised by Indianistas, no? And that is the part the Indigenistas, at least in, in Peru, didn't like, because Indigenistas would focus on the negative part of, of uh, Indian life, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and the point is that these photographs uh, or these texts, as, as we were discussing earlier today, they are they are ambivalent. They are not easy to deconstruct. Uh, there has been usually only one way to read them. There are other ways to read them, and that is uh, what we are um, asking ourselves today. And mm -hmm. that's what makes it interesting because they are, yeah. And and I do think we we were also talking about this today that. Um, different or different generations of scholars they project what they expect to mm -hmm. see right in the in the way they 
we, we see the artifacts or they see the artifacts, you know, that, uh, and I'm thinking more in the, in the difference between Indianista and Indigenista scholars that were very um, different in the late 19th century and the um, first half of the 20th century in the case of, of Peru. So we were also talking about, in, in the case of Peru, and it's, it's probably similar in the case of Morocco and Mali, that this is an understudied area. Yeah, uh, and we were, uh, there is also the barrier of language in the sense, as you were saying today after, at the end of your mm -hmm. presentation, Candice, that you publish in English, but are you going to be uh, read in Mali? No, and it's similar uh, uh, with us um, in the case of Peru, that uh, if I publish in English, it will be known here, but not in Peru. Mm -hmm. But if I publish in Spanish, I, it will be read in Peru, but not so much here. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't know if you f uh, confront a similar situation in the case, um, Mary, in the case of... Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I guess it, it, if you publish in English, won't, it won't be read in uh, Morocco. Well, or and even yes, in Morocco, yes. I could publish in French, and it yes. would only reach these specific yes. elites, Elite. you know, who are running in the same circles and... It's yes. the same thing in Mali. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a fallacy of the language because at least um, probably Mary, Mary uh, since uh, she's a literary scholar like me, we have to publish, we're expected to publish in the, in, in the two languages, in English, the scholarship, and in Spanish because if we only publish in English, we're not read right. or, in, yeah. in the mm -hmm. Spanish-speaking mm -hmm. academias mm -hmm. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But... You know, we are making a career here, so <laughs> we need mm -hmm. to reach the public here. But so uh, taking into account these um, mm -hmm. difficulties of the profession, what would you advise to someone, a student or a young scholar or, well, not even a young scholar or someone who is starting to work in, in, in a field that is understudied, there is so much to do. There is so much uh, rescue with the archive, also working with the archive. We were talking about that. What would you advise them um, to do or, or uh, if, if they want to embark in um, the study of indigenous or native uh, photography? Candice? I always say you have to learn a local language and mm -hmm. spend a lot of time in the local place. So it requires getting grants that can support you mm -hmm. to stay in a period for an extended amount of time, at least a year. Um, I think it's really hard to do ethical work unless you do spend time. If you're focusing on indigenous, local, um, in my case, African uh, subject matter. But there's a lot of graduate students right now who are actually focusing on photography in West Africa. It's become fairly popular. So hopefully over time we'll be able to reconstruct the larger history. Most of us have started to study it in a national context. Like I study photography in Mali. Others study photography in Senegal or in Nigeria. But naturally these were porous borders and people were crossing them. And so now I would say collaborate, you know, work together um, to kind of reconstruct these histories so that they're not just artificial we've got enough work done now that we can start to work together and that's what we're trying to do uh, with this archive of Malian photography hopefully it'll become the archive of West African photography yeah it's a it, it's a great contribution right? it's a great achievement but it's 
a great contribution towards preservation. Your your project of uh, the archive of Malian photography. Thank you. Yes, yes. And Mary, what would you advise someone who is going into <laughs> these waters? Yeah. Um, well, one thing that I'm appreciating and learning um, from this from this seminar is that you can approach these works from a variety of disciplines. So there's the art history aspect, there's the ethnography aspect, there's the cultural studies aspect. Um, so, so that's fun, and, and uh, I think you know students from different areas or uh, scholars, interested people. Um, I think it's always you know have humility <laughs> because. Um, if you really want to become an expert, you know, the road is long and mm -hmm. there are a lot of yeah. levels of expertise that you can d dig down into. And then I think in a lot of places in, you know, Africa, South America, when we're talking about learning lang working languages, you may need some working knowledge of several languages. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to get to through those some layers of bureaucracy, you might, you know, in West Africa or North Africa, you know, French, um, standard Arabic, Moroccan Arabic, you know, in, in Morocco, I mean, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Amazigh languages. Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so depending on what you want to do and, and what type of art you want to study and what level you want to study at, you know, there, there are a lot of options and choices, but definitely I think your advice about, you know, seeking, um, seeking grants and funding and really digging deeper. If you're a scholar, um, that's what you need to do and not stay on the surface. Yes. One of the things, I think one of the um, students who were today in the seminar mentioned, she was, uh, saying, Claudia, she was saying, uh, talking about talking to the people before she would ask them if, if she could take their, their photo. Mm -hmm. no? I mean, she's mm -hmm. not a photographer. She's a graduate student of uh, literary studies, but she was talking about that. And I was remembering or thinking that, that I do the same. I do the mm -hmm. same when I go to Peru, you know, and I... I'm not a professional photographer. I just like to take photographs, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm in as specifically interested in weavers. And it's usually the women who mm -hmm. weave today. Mm -hmm. um, in the past, it was men and women. Right now, uh, currently, it's on, uh, women. But I have so much respect, and I don't want them to think that I am looking at them as exotic um, artifacts for mm -hmm. touristic consumption, mm -hmm. <laughs> that I, I like to engage in conversation with them. Mm -hmm. And I use some Quechua words intentionally. I don't speak Quechua, but I, ha I know a few words that have some vocabulary and like to, to, to get closer to them, mm -hmm. you know, not to be that strange to them. Because I'm already strange. They, they, they look at me and they say to me, Senorita, you are from Lima, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they Im immediately <laughs> they know I'm from the coast. I'm not from mm -hmm. the highlands also because of the way I speak, the way I dress. But that's what I do. I try to engage in into a casual conversation, and I ask them what they are doing, and I ask them to teach me about mm -hmm. the textile they are weaving. Mm -hmm. And then I ask them after some time, uh, uh, may I take a picture of you? Because I'm very interested in the act of weaving. Mm -hmm. And they always say yes, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. they sometimes nervously mm -hmm. smile and or, or laugh. But it's... Uh, it, it's a lot of respect for exactly. me. It's a, it's a very it's, it has to be a very respectful practice. Yes, you know. I yeah. I agree, and I don't know if this is true where both of you work, but in Mali, also you need a permit to take 
photographs, you need to go through the Ministry of Culture. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. From people? From or if you're researching. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, that doesn't happen in Peru. That doesn't happen in Peru, and it should it should happen because the indigenous people, especially in the highlands, they are subject to being photographed by tourists all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now we were talking about this earlier that they have in the past when I was when I was a kid with my you know going trolling with my parents, they would be shy. I act either they would smile, you know, they would freeze the smile, or they would just. Um, uh, turn look, away. Yeah, turn away, look the other way because they didn't want to be photographed. Mm -hmm. But um, today, uh, they have learned with the global market, you know, give me one dollar mm -hmm. or two dollars or dollars. They don't ask for the currency of Peru. And I, I let you photograph mm -hmm. me, you know. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to do that. I don't. And that's why I engage in conversation. Mm -hmm. and I try to get somehow close to them yeah I think so I think building relationships and being respectful and and developing trust is the only way really to do ethical field work in my opinion yeah okay well thank you uh, very much as I have said um, in other conversations uh, this is a fun conversation part of a fun seminar I'm having a lot of fun <laughs> <and> myself <laughs> so I would like to conclude this conversation thank you you um, the two of you and invite um, everyone to visit our podcast page for more information on this seminar and uh, the work of our guests and participants in this seminar. And finally, I would like to state the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors or official entities of the university. I also want to thank technical producer Daniel Trego and invite you to tune in for our next podcast.